0: Good morning, uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We are through chapter 4, so, you know, we're making progress, slowly but surely, through Luke's gospel, hearing about who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and why that matters for life, how that shapes and transforms our hearts and, and totally changes everything about life for us. Uh, and a- as you're turning there, I want to ask you, do, do you have a fishing story so I am, I am not a fisherman by any, any sense of the word. In fact, I, I find qu- fishing quite boring. So I know I just lost several of you. But I, I'm not a big fisherman, and I've, I've not fished very often in my life. But there is one uh, fishing story that I, that I have that I'll share with you in a minute. But, but fishing stories tend to be these kind of em- embellished stories that we tell, right? They're, they're these stories about something incredible that has happened, and, and we tell them because we, we want people to, to say, you know, we're kind of saying, look at what I've experienced, look at what I've seen, look at what I've done, you know? And so we share them with people. And each time you tell it, it gets a little more extravagant, doesn't it? Well, I, I won't embellish mine, but I'll actually uh, show you this photo of mine. Um, they're going to put it on the screen. I was nine years old uh, when this was taken, uh, and this was my fishing story. So as you can see, this fish was about half the size of nine-year-old Pastor Grant, um, and, and I was not a huge fisherman, but my, my stepdad and my mom had taken me and a cousin fishing that day and, and that evening, and so we were fishing, and, and we caught nothing all night long. I mean, nothing. It was, it was so boring and so dull, which is why I don't like fishing. And, and my wife loves it, which is a problem, you know, but, you know, so you do things for the Lord and for the people you love, but, um, and, and she'll tell you I don't fish with her near often enough, but, um, and I probably don't, but, so th- this evening, though, we're catching absolutely nothing. And, and it's rather boring. And at this time, my, my stepdad is not yet married to my mother, so I assume this was probably like one of those fun outings like to, to help me you know, get to know him better and, and like him and like him more before they got married and such. And, and, and so we're going fishing, you know, it's supposed to be exciting and nothing happens. And then we're about to back up and leave. And this thing gets on my hook. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm in a battle. I'm reeling this thing in with everything I've got. I mean, nine-year-old Grant isn't very strong, you know? And and the fish, you know, it almost almost beat me. You know, I'm reeling this thing in with everything I've got and finally, like, I'm pulling it and I'm taking steps backward and and I, I finally get it onto the grass and the line snaps. And my stepdad goes, oh no, and he dives into the mud to grab the fish. That's some dedication right there, you know. And so we got the fish, and I got my picture with the fish that was half as big as I was and, you know, might have weighed more than I did. Um, and, and, and so this was my, my fishing story, right? And, and so we tell fishing stories because we want to say, hey, look at, look at what I've done. Look at what I've experienced. Look at what I've seen. And, and we're amazed at something that has happened. Well, this morning in Luke chapter 5, we're going to read a fishing story But I think what you'll notice is that Peter's fishing story has absolutely nothing to do with Peter. It has nothing to do with Peter's abilities. It has nothing to do with what Peter has seen or experienced or what he's been able to accomplish. Instead, at the end of Peter's miraculous catch, his focus is on Jesus. And that's what it's all about. So I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5 as we dive in and we look at this uh, fishing story, this miraculous catch, and we see how Jesus even turns it on its head and makes it about something else. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1, here's what we read. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Let's pause there for just a minute. Jesus is on the side of this lake, and this lake is the Sea of Galilee. So I know it says Lake of Gennesaret there. Well, Gennesaret was a town that was close to Capernaum, which is where we've been the last couple of weeks. And it was on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke uses this other term to describe this lake because not far off is the Mediterranean Sea, which is actually a sea and so much bigger. And so Luke, as he's referring to the Sea of Galilee, he calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. And so Jesus has been doing incredible miracles, and he's been preaching some pretty good sermons that are pretty intriguing. And and people are following him wherever they go. Wherever he goes, people follow him. The crowds follow him, and and they want to hear more of what he's got to say, and they want to see him do more miracles. They don't leave him alone. I mean, one night, he's, he's up through the night healing people and delivering people from, from demons and darkness, and, and they don't let him alone. He tries to get away and get some time with God, and, and they won't let him have it. And so now, in chapter 5, he's, he's by the edge of this lake, and the people are kind of crowding him in, and so, so Jesus knows that if, if he takes a step off the shore into a boat, that He's going to have a better place, a safer place, and a more acoustically designed place to teach the crowds from. You see, have you ever been on the water and, and you've heard somebody in a boat that's really far away that you shouldn't be able to hear? It's because the acoustics, the, the, the sound travels further. And so Jesus, he, he gets in this boat, he commandeers Peter's boat, right? I mean, these guys just finished the, finished the night shift, so I don't know if you've ever worked the night shift, but when you're done, you're done. Like, you don't, you don't want to keep working and you don't want to keep doing things. You want to go home. You want to be done. And Peter and his, and, his, and his buddies, his partners, have just finished the night shift and they've caught nothing. I mean, crickets, there, there was nothing. And that, mean, that means some bad things for them. Like, financially, that's, that's a no-go, that's no good. And so they're ready to go home, they're frustrated, and here comes Jesus. They've already gotten out of their boats, and they're cleaning their nets. And Jesus just steps into Peter's boat, and he's like, hey, man, can you take me out there a little ways? And you got to imagine Peter was just kind of exasperated, <laughs> you know? He's just kind of exhausted and like, what is this guy doing, you know? I mean, can't, can't he tell, like, we're done working for the evening, and we're going home, be with our families, get some rest? I mean, we're cleaning the nets right in front of him. And he's like, hey, take me out there a little ways. Well, Peter, you know, I mean, Jesus just rebuked his mother-in-law's fever. And so, you know, he feels kind of obligated. And, you know, maybe even, you know, he says, you know, that was kind of cool what you did for my mother-in-law. And and so, you know, maybe I'll I'll go ahead and do this for you. And he he takes Jesus out there. and, And then when Jesus is done teaching the crowds... See, Jesus' teaching of the crowds here is not the main point. What's, what's about to happen with Peter is the main point in this passage. So, so Jesus tells Peter when he's done teaching, he's like, hey, I'm not done with you yet. Go ahead and take your net and cast it down into the deep. And, and, and Peter, look at, look at how he answers him. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but at your word, I will let down the nets. So, so Peter has this kind of half-hearted obedience, this, this reluctant obedience where, where he, he's probably a little grateful for what Jesus has done for his family, but, you know, maybe he's even still got some skepticism and some, some doubts about what he saw. You know, he might, he might be thinking, you know, well, that was pretty cool how you rebuked the fever, but did you slip something in her tea or something? Like, you know, how, how did this actually happen? Like, what's the trick, you know? But nonetheless, Peter's grateful, and he's, he's heard Jesus preach some, some pretty intriguing, interesting sermons, and he sees the crowds following him, and so he knows, you know, this might be bad for business if I don't obey the teacher, you know, because he's pretty famous. And so he goes ahead, and, and reluctantly, he, he drops the, the net down into the water, but he, he's sure to let Jesus know, Master, like, we, we, we worked all night, and there was nothing and I don't know, I know you don't know this because you're a carpenter and all, but I'm a fisherman and, and the fish bite here at night, not in broad daylight, okay? And, but, but since you've been so good to our family, since, since, since you're such a good teacher, like, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it for you, but just don't expect anything. And so, and so Peter kind of self-righteously, a little reluctantly has this half-hearted obedience, and, and I love how a mentor and a friend of mine put it. He, he said that half-hearted obedience to God is outright rebellion against God. And, and Peter is about to realize just this truth. Here in just a couple of verses, you'll see it, that Peter realizes this about himself, that he's, he's made a serious mistake here in, in questioning Jesus, so Peter, he, he drops the net down, and, and here's the thing about Peter's kind of questioning of God. It's, the, the first thing I want you to see is that we, we often do this too, right? We, we assume that we know better than God does. So what does that look like for you? Maybe, maybe you're not a fisherman that, that knows all the ins and outs of fishing. I mean, I'm certainly not. But, but Peter thinks, you know, I, I know when the fish are going to be there, and they weren't there, and there's no way this is going to happen, and, and so he assumes that he knows better than Jesus does. What's it look like for you? Where, where and when do you think that you know better than God? Where and when are you reluctant to do something that God has asked you to do because it just doesn't make sense to you? It just doesn't click. I mean, I mean you think you you honestly think you know you might not admit this, but you know better than than he does than what he's asking of you. How about with your dating relationships or your sexuality? See, oftentimes we know God has this design that's supposedly good for us and it's a good plan and and we know what his word says, but but then honestly, we we think and we really believe that. That, that pleasure that we can get from doing things our way is actually better than God's. Or maybe for you, it's, it's with your finances and giving. And you know the Bible c- commands believers to give generously and, and with a, a joyful heart, a cheerful heart. But, but when you look at numbers, you know that you can do much, much more with 100% of your money than you can do with 90% of it. I mean, God might be omnipotent and omniscient. He might know everything. But listen, you, you've passed algebra a couple times, maybe even some precalc. I mean, I mean, I mean, you got a C and a C minus, respectively. So, like, you know how the numbers fill out. You know how it works. I mean, you passed the class. You know, more money, you can do more with more money than you can with less of it. And so you say, God, God I don't, I don't really understand this whole like giving thing, like. You know, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna spend my money over here. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this over here. Maybe for you, it's it's your retirement. You know, you, you you've heard about some believers that have decided to take their retirement and maybe maybe go back to school, maybe even go to, go to seminary and and learn more about the Bible and theology and and missions and and how how they can serve their church better. Maybe you've even known some retiree friends that that have actually moved overseas, or moved to a different city to be a part of a church plant, or, or some missions effort. But you think, you know, I worked really hard my whole career, and, and isn't retirement, isn't that the time where, where I just finally get to rest and en- enjoy some things in life that I wanted to do? You see, so often there's, there's things in life, and there's areas in life in which God calls us to do something. And it doesn't really make sense to us. It, it, it's kind of like Peter as, as he's sitting there. He's worked all night long and they've caught nothing and Jesus says, drop your net in the water. And he's like, all right, Jesus, but this isn't gonna work. And we do this with God all the time. God asks things of us. He, he calls us to do things as a part of his mission of making disciples and, and we question him all the time. Because it doesn't make sense to us. But here's the thing about God and his calling on your life. It doesn't have to make sense to you. And in fact, if God is actually God, if he's actually omniscient, meaning he knows everything, if he's actually omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful, that means there's going to be some things in life that God asks you to do that you're not going to understand That means that we can't assume that we know better than him. That means there's going to be some blind spots that we have where we don't really, really get it fully, but but God has asked us to do something, and then we take a step of faith and we go ahead and do it. And and I think what you'll find is you take these steps of faith in your walk with the Lord is is that you'll see God do things that you never would have expected him to do. That's exactly what happens with Peter. Read with me starting in verse 6. At the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. You see, here's what we see here. When when we begin to see God clearly, we begin to see ourselves clearly. You see, Peter, he sees Jesus do something amazing. He knows that there's not been fish there all night long. He knows the fish aren't there. He knows that what has just taken place in front of his very eyes is a miracle. I mean, I mean, it's such a miracle. It's, it, it, he's never seen anything like this before. I, I mean, and this is so much bigger than, than nine-year-old Pastor Grant catching a fish that's about half the size of him. I mean, I'd never seen anything that big in, in my life either. But, but what Peter is experiencing here, I mean, I mean they're worried the nets are going to break and that their boats are going to sink with, how, with, with the haul that they've just brought in. I mean, this is the best fishing day that they've ever had and that they've ever heard of. This, this exceeds any fishing stories they've heard their entire lives. Their, their, their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' fathers' fathers <laughs> have not seen anything like this happen. And so Peter knows that this wasn't just dropping his net down at the right time in the right place. He knows that Jesus just did something that no one else can do. And, and instead of being amazed at the success, because that's what most of us would be, right? I mean, I mean we would be amazed at our luck. We, we would be thrilled with what's just happened because we're, we're set for a while you know this. This is that. Fin- this is that financial blessing that you have wanted and longed for. This is. This is you. This is you playing the lottery, and I know some of you do it. So you know we can talk. But uh, you know, th- this is this is winning the lottery. And see, you and I, we would just be amazed at what we'd gotten. But Peter's response is so different. He's not even. Am- he's not just amazed at the miracle. He's amazed at the one who accomplished it. So he turns around as the other guys are like trying to keep the boats from sinking and, and the nets all together. They're trying to keep the fish that they've just got. And Peter turns around and he gets on his knees and, and he's like, Lord, you've got you've to get away from me. I, I, I'm a sinful man. You see, he realizes something about Jesus. He realizes this is not just a prophet. This is not just a good teacher. This is God Himself. Come to us. And so Peter, Peter, when he, when he sees God's power and God's presence before his very eyes, he realizes he's in trouble. He sees God clearly for maybe the first time in a while. And the thing about seeing God clearly, seeing God for who he is, seeing that that God is real and God is present and God is powerful and God is holy, he's pure, he's righteous, he always does what is right and there's, there's no ill will, there's no evil in God. When we begin to see the truth about God, it exposes the truth about us. We begin to realize that, that in front of a holy God, we have no standing, that, that we're in some serious trouble unless someone does something. Peter, he's going to become the leader of the early church. In Luke's second book, the book of Acts, if you go read it, Peter plays a prominent role in the early church. We read elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus turns to Peter and he, and he says, Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. He's like, you're going to be the leader of this thing. You're going to serve me and serve under me, and you're going to be the leader of the early church. And so Peter is a really significant guy for Luke to be kind of drawing some things out for us and showing some things about him. And one of the first things that Peter realizes when he realizes God has chosen to show himself to him is that he has no right to stand before God. And this is what the prophets have, have noticed beforehand. We read in Isaiah chapter 6 this about Isaiah's encounter with God. It says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew you see, the seraphim, they cover their eyes because God is so holy that they can't look on him. They cover their feet because God is so holy that they can't stand in his presence. These are, these are the holy spiritual beings that dwell in the presence of God, and, and even they, when they see God, they, they know that God is something altogether different than them, and he is holy and pure and righteous, and, and this holiness is blinding to them. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Look at Isaiah's response. He says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is why he realizes this. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, and, and so Isaiah has this encounter with God. And, and so often throughout scripture, when people encounter God and who he is, this is the response. They realize they can't stand before him. If they're not worthy of him, that, that they need God to do Something. One of the seraphim is, 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 is uh, if you read on the next verse, he, he, he brings something and he touches Isaiah's lips, symbolizing that, that, that God is, is cleansing him. And you see, Peter is terrified because he's in the presence of God. And, and, and what's so beautiful about what happens is that as you read on in chapter 5, We'll get to this here in a couple of weeks, but as you read on, Jesus says this in chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. Here's what we read. And the Pharisees and their scribes, these were the religious elite of the day, grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're saying, why are you guys hanging out with, with the sinful folk, with the people who don't deserve to be in God's presence, who aren't worthy of him? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, what's so beautiful about Jesus coming to Peter here is that there's nothing incredible about Peter. He's a fisherman. Which means, like, even, even though Peter knows his Bible decently well, he was no intellectual elite. This was not the guy that had gone to seminary and, and like, completed the master's degree and his Ph.D. This, this is not him. This is the guy who, who couldn't cut it in seminary. This is the everyday guy who works a blue-collar job just trying to make ends meat for his family's sake. This is the guy who who works all night long to provide for his family. There, there's nothing nothing famous about him. There's nothing extravagant about him. There's nothing incredible about Peter. And Jesus comes to call Peter to himself. Jesus comes not for the righteous, not for the elite. He comes for the sinner, for the broken one. He comes for the everyday person like you and me. You see, Jesus comes to those who aren't worthy of standing in God's presence. He comes to those who have no standing before God. They have no no rights before him. And he calls them to himself. He calls them to turn from sin and to follow after him. So Jesus has come for men just like Peter because he's going to use Peter as a part of his his mission and his plan for the world. This This is God choosing not the A team and not the B team, probably not even the C team, and doing his work through men like that. You see, here's the thing about seeing God clearly and and seeing ourselves clearly. Sometimes we we don't see the need to to really get a clear picture of who God is, because life in the midst of its routines, it it just keeps going, and and it seems like you know when we're when we're not real tied into the things of God, like things just keep moving, and so we can go days, we can go weeks. I can go months or years without really a thought to who God is or, or what our need for Him would be because life just keeps moving on. But if we will humble ourselves before God and ask Him to reveal Himself to us, if we seek Him out in His Word, if we seek a picture of who this God actually is. And friends, he will show us our need for him. A few weeks back, we had the privilege of going to an event that the Kentucky Baptist Convention puts on for pastors and their wives every year. Uh, It's a little kind of mini retreat uh, where pastors and wives can just kind of get away from all the everyday stresses of ministry life and and just have some time where where they focus on hearing from the Lord together and and man I'll I'll never forget the first night from this year. I mean I probably won't forget this year at all because it was like it was like each session God just showed me exactly what I needed him to show me. But this first night especially this, this pastor from here in Louisville, he, he preached the sermon on, on our neediness and, and how we actually can flourish when we become aware of our need for God. And God just reminded this room of pastors and their spouses, those who, who serve in, in ministry in all sorts of places every day, and, and he just reminded us that we still need him. Just as much as we did on day one. That we ha- have no right to stand before Him. That the only reason we can is because of what Jesus has done. That, that, that God actually exposes these things in us. That He gives us a glimpse of who He is so that we can see that we need Him and run to Him. You see, and so, so my prayer would be that, that you would ask God to show you Himself. Ask him to reveal himself to you. That you might have this moment where, like Peter, you realize how powerful and good and present this God is and that it might drive you to your knees before him and that you might say, "Say, God, I need you. As our passage moves on, we see that Peter is given this commission, this mission. He's, he's given this calling. See, Jesus, he takes this, this miraculous catch, this, this fishing story where, where Peter and his coworkers have just fished for fish, and he's about to make them fishers of men. And Jesus said to Simon, "Do not be afraid." For from now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, Jesus is going to take them from catching live fish that would then die to catching spiritually dead men and women who would then find life in him. He's going to take fishermen and he's going to make them fishers of men. He's going to use these everyday people like you and me for his grand redemptive purposes and plans. This this plan that God set in motion from before the foundations of the earth, that Peter and James and John even who are mentioned here will, will become a part of this. You see, what we see here is that when Jesus gives us a mission, we must leave everything to follow him. This is what discipleship is all about. This is what we mean when we say make disciples. It's teaching people to leave everything to find everything in Christ. You see, the disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. They get up and, and they, it says they left everything and followed him. It means they left their jobs. They left their recent success. They have this huge haul of fish. And and instead of celebrating that and and rejoicing that and and being excited about the miracle they've just seen, they leave the miracle behind to follow the one who performed it. Because they realize that the value is not in, in this miracle that God has provided for them, but it's in God himself. It's it's in following this man who's able to do things like this. And so they leave their jobs, they leave their livelihoods to follow Jesus. They wouldn't have been accepted by any other rabbi, any other teacher of the day. They wouldn't have made the cut. And they leave everything behind to follow this one. Because this one isn't just a rabbi, he's not just a teacher. He is Lord God Almighty present and with them. They leave their jobs and recent success. They leave their families. They leave their homes. They leave everything to follow this man. And and, and notice that all these things that I'm talking about, jobs, success, home, family, friendships, those are all good things, right? But they left all of it to follow Jesus. And that's the thing, is sometimes the things in your life that are keeping you from following Jesus, from knowing him more, and, and from being about his mission are not bad things at all. Sometimes they're actually very good things. Good things that we should even celebrate and thank God for. Sometimes what's keeping you from, from following after Jesus is the fact that something else, something good, has become something ultimate. And instead of Jesus being your everything, this thing is. You see, we, uh, uh, there was one author who said that our hearts are like, are like idol factories. They, they constantly are, are putting things, even good things in life, in the place that only God should be as central, as of utmost importance, as our everything. So so what's your everything that's keeping you from finding your everything in Christ? What is everything to you? What is it that if you lost it today, tomorrow life wouldn't be worth living anymore? What is it that if you finally got it today, if God finally gave it to you, if you finally succeeded in this or that, that you would would believe that honestly that would bring satisfaction and contentment and happiness to your life? You see, asking these kinds of questions, these are the things that expose what we put in the place that we should only put God in. I heard one pastor say it like this in my hometown. He he said, we tend to, you you know, Jesus sits on the throne in heaven, but something else sits on on the throne of our hearts. Something else is ultimate to us. And what has to shift, what has to take place is, is that we need to dethrone whatever is ultimate to us that is not Christ. You see, these guys, they're leaving good things. They're leaving jobs and success. They're leaving families and friendships and homes so that they can obey Jesus and follow him and be about his mission, be about being fishers of men, making disciples of Christ. For some people, it's very much like these men. It's a job. Maybe it's even a job that you're pretty good at. Maybe it's a job that you've done your whole career. And, and Jesus is asking you to do something different now. And it frightens you. Because it's not what you're used to. And, and you've had this good gig for a long time. But maybe now, at this point in your life, maybe, maybe Jesus is calling you to do something different. He's calling you to serve him in a different way. Maybe, maybe he's calling you to quit this job and get a new job and serve him in a new place or a new location or a new city. Maybe he's calling you to leave your job entirely and go serve on the mission field or, or be a part of a church plant or, or whatever that looks like. And I can't answer that question for you. See, for some of us, it's, it's money itself and the things that money can buy and, and the kind of lifestyle that we can enjoy if we acquire enough of it. For some of us, it's, it's actually family. For some of us, what well, leaving everything looks like looks like very much like these men did. It looks like leaving family behind to follow Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because uh, what, what I'm saying is is not that that family ceases to be important or, or that you cease to love family, to love Jesus or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. And, and, and I'm not saying you, you abandon your responsibilities that are God-given to your, those he's entrusted to you as a part of your family. But maybe it's just that you begin to realize that family is not the most important thing. It's the second most important thing. After your relationship with Christ. That, you know, for some of us, we we put something very good like family, something that's God-given that we should thank God for and praise God for, and we make it ultimate, and it's our everything that keeps us from finding everything in Jesus. And so maybe it's just a priority shift for you. You know, maybe, maybe this looks like staying right where you're at But putting Jesus first in your home. And and, you know, so 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 oftentimes families spend all their time going from from this kid's event to to this kid's practice to this kid's game to to this kid's dance recital and, and all these different activities. And and all of a sudden the schedule is so full that there's no time on a given week to say, we're a family that loves and serves Jesus. There's nothing on the schedule that says Jesus is our priority. There's, there's all these really good activities, these good things, even helpful things, but, but so much of it is there that there's no time for Christ. And so maybe it looks like pulling back on a couple of things so that you can have some family worship time together. So that you can, you can open the Bible together as a family so you can pray for each other. Maybe it's just a simple priority shift like that. Sometimes it might look like mom or dad sacrificing some time for their careers or even time with their kiddos to prioritize their marriage so that their marriage reflects who Jesus is. Because here's the thing, moms and dads, if your marriage reflects who Christ is, that's gonna be a whole lot better for your kids than if you spend every second putting them first. If they see you honoring Christ, loving Christ, and following him and serving him and and doing so together and and having a strong Christ-centered marriage, that's going to do so much more for your kids than if you neglect your marriage to focus on them. See, so sometimes it's a priority shift for us. It's getting our priorities straight, and for some of us, it might look like packing, packing up, and leaving our immediate our, our distant relatives that, that maybe we enjoy living close to. It might look like moving to a new city to serve Christ in a new job. It might look like going to the mission field overseas. Sometimes it it does look like packing up and moving. I say that as a pastor who loves you, doesn't want to to see any of you go. But if Christ is calling you to, you must do it. You must pack your bags and, and go serve him wherever he's calling you to serve. Because he is everything. And we must leave everything to follow him. That's exactly what Peter realizes. So ask yourself today, what, it, what is it that you are assuming you know better than God? What area of your life are you assuming that he just doesn't really know what's best for you, and so you're holding on to it? It might be finances, it might be a relationship, it might be, who Who knows? Ask yourself, are, are, are you seeing God clearly? Are you seeing him for who he is? And then is that exposing the things in you that you need to turn from so that you can follow after Christ? And ask yourself, what is it that you're holding on to functionally that, that honestly, if you're honest with yourself, you see is worth more than Christ? What is your everything that is keeping you from leaving everything and finding everything in Jesus? And that's my prayer is that God would expose that in us and that we would find everything in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so profoundly grateful for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. God, we, like Peter, need you to make us aware of our desperate need for you. We need you to show us. We need you to open our eyes and our ears so that we might see you for who you are. We might hear your word clearly and understand it. And that that might expose the things in us that that you need us to turn from so that we can follow you and serve you. God, I pray for my friends who who don't know where they're supposed to serve you. I pray that you'd give them your wisdom. I pray that your spirit would lead them and guide them. I pray that you'd help us to see the ways you're calling us to serve you and that you would give us just this relentless, humble faith, this desire to pursue you and run after you. Because Jesus, you are everything. And so, God, we give you all the praise and the glory now, and we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.